Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. And so it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews and spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, Why, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah, the Amorite, was beside him. And he said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes upon it, he'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to the half of its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now, when it happened, when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored, the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for your word that your word has a message for us today. And we ask that we would leave here with the biblical perspective of world events and our place in your plan. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Looked at this passage of scripture this morning simply because I'm not one to ignore what goes on through the weeks. If something notable goes on that I feel like we need to address from a biblical perspective, then we'll look into God's word. And to many, the headlines in the news this week have been quite frightening. If you haven't already heard, for weeks and months, the uh, president or the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un is his name. He's a very blustery type individual, has a lot of things to say, makes a lot of threats, and uh, says a lot of things. And of course, North Korea has been blasting a few missiles off into the ocean, and he's making claims that they can reach the United States and just making a lot of noise. Well, for the most part, world leaders pretty much ignore that and they counter in diplomatic terms. Well, the game changed this week because obviously the big blustery leader of North Korea got under the president's skin. And he fired back with a, another inflammatory remark and said more or less, I dare you to try something. You just try it. And we'll respond in fire and fury that the world has never known. Well, one thing you have to know about a blustery leader, that's all they want is a dare and to know they got under your skin. So he's countered back and up the ante. He said, at the middle of this month, we're sending missiles to Guam and they'll be involved in an envelope of fire. 
people are getting shook up over that, and rightfully so, because they already know that this nation has nuclear capabilities. The question is, can they put it on a missile to reach the United States? Well, the answer to that is yes, because Guam is considered part of the United States because we have an air base there. So a lot of people are quite frightened. And the news media is getting quite shrill and in a frenzy over this. And people are getting unsettled. They're unsettled and they're disturbed because all of this seems to be new and unfamiliar circumstances. However, God's people have faced these issues before. God has dealt with these issues before. So instead of looking at the Republican perspective and the Democratic perspective and the Russian perspective and the China perspective and the North Korean perspective, the South Korean perspective, a little bit shaky too, let's look at the biblical perspective. And let's look, in fact, that these new headlines are really nothing new to God. Let's look at Nehemiah's set of problems. Nehemiah is busy building the wall of Jerusalem. Babylon had come in decades before and had taken Jerusalem and its citizens captive, carried them all away. Now it's about 70 years later, and Nehemiah, who was part of the king's staff over in Babylon, it came to his attention that even though people were allowed to go back into Jerusalem, the walls were in a terrible situation. So he approached the king of Babylon. He said, I would like to rebuild the wall so those that are going back are safe from the other leaders around them. So he embarked on a quest, and his program was to make Jerusalem great again and rebuild the wall and rebuild Jerusalem. And he was doing just that. Well, as they begin to build, the leaders around them, which were, of course, in the realm of Syria, Jordan, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, some of the same cast of players we're dealing with today, they began to get angry. And notice what they said. They were furious and indignant. And in verse 2, he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones uh, from the heaps of rubbish, even stones that have been burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. He said, whatever they build, even a fox can tear it down. Talk about some trash talk. You think something's going on between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un? Here was some trash talk coming from the people around them. So they engaged in trash talk, ridicule, and then they engaged in serious threats of harm. Several different times they said, we're coming and we'll destroy your wall. This looks like the headlines from the day, doesn't it? Of course, they didn't have any missiles at that time, or I imagine that would have been part of the rhetoric, but they said, we're coming, and your wall's nothing, and we're about to tear it down. What are we going to do? Well, that was not the only problems he had. The second problem he had, some of his own leaders of the Jewish people 
were not looking out in the best interest of the work at hand. In chapter 3, verse 5, we've mentioned this before a few sermons ago. They were rebuilding the wall and it's given a list of the people that pitched in and helped. And it says this, next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Their leadership, the leaders of the land, didn't have the best interests of the land at heart. Or let's just put it another way. The leaders of the land could not be depended on to come through and do the right thing. So now you're in real shaky territory. You have threats on the outside. Now you have some people on the inside you can't really depend on. But it gets even worse. He had some internal problems within the land that interfered with the work. In verse 10, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing. There is so much rubbish we're not able to build the wall. Well, the rubbish he was talking about were the loose stones and the trash that littered the area around Jerusalem because of neglect. And because of the neglect of the people, they had to clear up the rubbish in the land before they could build the wall. But you see, that was the least of his problems. Because if you continue on in verse 12, and so it was when the Jews who dwelt knew them, near them came that they told us ten times, for whatever place you turn, they'll be upon us. You had a group of Jewish people who were around nearby who were doing absolutely nothing to help. In fact, not only were they doing absolutely nothing to help, all they were doing was offering complaints and criticism and doubt and discouragement. Did you hear what it says here? What they were doing is this. All these people working hard, doing their part, and you had a group off to the side saying, that'll never work. That'll never work. They'll ambush you before you know it. And it says they did it not once, but ten times over and over again. Now, hard enough to rally the people when you have threats from the outside. But when you have folks on the inside who's saying, this will never work, it'll never work. He had some problems, had even more problems. In chapter 5, the first 11 verses, it tells of a situation where the people who were working on the wall couldn't really prepare and, and provide a, a living for themselves for a little while. They were having to borrow money from those who had money to lend. Those who had money to lend were charging such an exorbitant interest rate of their own countrymen who were serving their country, they had to indenture their sons and daughters as servants to these people. And they came to Nehemiah and said, we're so stressed out and we are so angry at our own countrymen who are taking advantage of the fact that we're working hard on the wall that we need some relief. And it says Nehemiah was very angry and he dealt with the situation. What was the situation? 
The situation was this. In the middle of all of this external threats, you had a lot of internal strife between two groups in the country. Now, isn't that something ripped right out of the headlines? Just over the weekend, we had protesters and counter-protesters over in North Carolina who clashed. One died over ideological arguments. So we realized what we're seeing in our country this last week, Nehemiah was having to deal with in this particular passage of Scripture. So what's the answer to this? What is the solution? The best solution is the biblical perspective. And he gives us the response. In verse 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. Now the first thing we may want to do is fire back an insult over to Sanballat and all those other guys who are trash talking. First thing we may want to do is to go have to deal with the internal problems that we had. But the first thing he said, we made our prayer to our God. We always mention in troubled times the past description in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 where it says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. That's a good passage of scripture. That's a good prescription. But it has to have the whole prescription. And the whole prescription goes a little bit further. And he says this. And I will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. And he's talking about his house. Now, here's the principle. When a country begins to ignore and diminish and discount and discredit the church of the living God, that country is in peril. He didn't say, if my people will pray, that's what he said, but he didn't only say that. He said it will involve an interest and an investment and a dedication to this house. So as a country, when any country begins to ignore and discount the importance of his church, that country will be weakened. We always point over to Europe and say all the things that are going on over there because they let, all, let in all those Muslims and their foundations are crumbling because of their ideological. Decades ago, decades ago, Europe began to ignore church. And Europe basically is an unchurched area of the world. What happened? People begin to think church is not important. And when church becomes unimportant, the country will be weakened. We look as we talk about praying two things. First of all, we need to be careful of the danger of a misplaced trust. Where are we going to find the answers? Well, Look in Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah wrote several years before this 
And he's predicting, of course, the downfall of Jerusalem. This is long before the Babylonian event. Decades before, he warned them about a misplaced trust. And if you trust the wrong things, your country will fall. Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek the Lord. Woe unto those who trust in chariots and horses. Now let me say this. Chariots and horses, at the time Isaiah wrote, that was the best military technology that was available. So it's not far-fetched to look at this particular passage of Scripture. And they could say, well, we're comfortable. We're not unsettled. We can't be beat because we have the best in all of the military technology. And so they begin to trust in the fact that they had the military technology. So they begin to lean on that. And what does it say? The country as a whole ignored looking to God. But they said, that's not an issue. We're not shook up because we've got the strongest military technology in the world. But then there's a second point here. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. You see, going down to Egypt for help was a political alliance. And they thought, we can go down to Egypt for help. That's the political answer to the issue. And all too often in our country, you have a group over here that's depending on the Republican answer to the issue. There's the solution. And a group over here that's looking to the democratic solution to the problems. And they're going to lean on this. This group's going to lean on that. And we all respond, hey, both groups have had 200 years to get it right. Where are we now? We're trusting in the wrong people and in the wrong answers. And a political philosophy is not going to help our country. If we don't seek God. David the psalmist said it even further back before Isaiah. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. We will remember the name of the Lord our God. Will we? Will we remember the name of the Lord our God? Or is his name being pushed further and further out of public discussion in our country. You see it's a national response. But the national response is just a collective personal response. Will we remember the Lord our God? Will we pray? Will we seek his face? Secondly. And this is all wrapped up in this. Remember who is in control. Who's going to take control of this situation? Well. Your military pundits will say it's pretty obvious. The ones who will have control of the situation are the ones who will have the first strike. And the ones who have the biggest army. And the ones who have the most missiles. 
and the ones who have the biggest nuclear warheads, as the man in North Korea seems to want to think, remember who's in control. As they begin to stress over the whole collection of circumstances when Nehemiah was building the wall. Verse 14 of Nehemiah chapter 4 continues with the narrative. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome. Remember who is in control. I want to back up a little bit to another incident that happened, and it involved Babylon. As you remember, all of this had to do with the fact that the king of Babylon came and he took all of the land of Israel, mostly Jerusalem, captive. Well, he didn't take all of them. He took the brightest, the best, the wealthiest, the most skilled. He took all of them over. And one of these that he took over was Daniel. And an incident happened while Daniel is in Babylon that we want to look at that tells the whole story of this situation and the one we're in now. Daniel chapter 4, verse Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. We'll look at other verses here to get the whole story. And it all leads up to a very powerful point that we don't want to miss this morning. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about in the royal palace of Babylon. Now, 12 months after what? Well, 12 months after he had had a dream. He had had a dream that troubled him. And the details of the dream we're not going to go into, but we do want to look at the conclusion because Daniel was brought in to tell him the meaning of the dream, and he came to this conclusion in verse 25 of the same chapter. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, They'll make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. Seven times shall pass over you. Here's the point. Till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he chooses. You'll know that the most high rules. Where? Not just in church. Not just in heaven. The most high rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives that kingdom to whoever he chooses. Well, back to the king of Babylon, verse 30. The king spoke, saying, Isn't this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, and the kingdom has departed from you. 
They will drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. Seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. At that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, ate grass like the oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails as bird's claws. This is not lit- uh, just figurative. This was literal. He, he went crazy. He went mad. And the king of Babylon, the most powerful man in the world, was driven out. And he began to eat grass and stay outside in the rain and the, the, the day and night. And said that his hair grew long and his fingernails grew long. Said seven times went over him. What that means either seven months or seven years But that's a long time to live outside like a cow. The most powerful man in the world, driven from his palace. Verse 34. At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And what he said is this. This is from the king of Babylon, the emperor of the world. He says, God is in control of the whole affairs of men in the world. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony He admitted, God is God and we're not. Now Amos said it this way, chapter 6, verse 14. I will raise up a nation against you. Isn't that quite interesting? The Babylonians thought that they went in and sacked Jerusalem because they were a stronger army. They thought they were the ones who had the idea and they were the ones to take credit for it. But of course, because they had the biggest army and the most chariots and horses, God said, I'll raise up a nation against you. Now in the book of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah prophesied about this whole event, he says, I will shatter that nation and I will destroy kingdoms. He's talking about the very nation. When he was through with Babylon and Babylon had done the work of chastising the nation of Israel, they were completely shattered and broken in pieces. Who was in control? God was in control. God raises kingdoms up. God brings kingdoms down. So why do we pray to God? Because God's the one that's in control, not the White House, not the Parliament, not the man in North Korea. God is in control. So who do we want to turn to? Well, when I have a problem, I like to turn to the boss. And God's the boss. So when all these things were happening, Nehemiah said, we made our prayer to our God. But that's not where we stop. What else did he do? Verse 15. As it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall Every one to his work. 
And so it was from that time on, half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were were behind all the house of Judah, those who built on the wall, those who carried burdens, loaded themselves so that each one with one hand they worked at construction, with the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive. We're separated far from one to another on a wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work. Half of the men held spears from daybreak to the stars appeared. What else do we do besides pray? We get back to work. He said, every man returned to his work. And they worked hard from daylight till dark. Now, what's the lesson for us here? The work was too great to be distracted by the little yapping chihuahuas that claimed to be in charge of the leaders of the world. The work is too great in the church of the living God to be distracted by the little yapping chihuahuas claiming to have more nuclear missiles than the other. This work is bigger than any nation's work on the globe. We sometimes lose sight of that. The work that God has given us here is an eternal work. It goes from generation to generation. It's been going on for 2,000 years since Jesus left and went to the throne. And empires have come, empires have gone, and the church is still here. This is where it really matters. And so let's get back to work and not be distracted by political or other headlines in the news. The result was this. Chapter 4, verse 6. We built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to his half its height. The people had a mind to work. Chapter 6, verse 15. The wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And the result was overwhelming joy among the people. Chapter 8, verse 10. He said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions for those nothing is prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow. The joy of the Lord shall be your strength. The Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, this day is holy, do not be grieved. All the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and rejoiced greatly because they understood the words that were declared unto them. They found a copy of the Bible and began to read the Bible, and they were grieved because then they realized why they were in the shape they were in politically. But then he sent them home saying, Don't be grieved. God's got this under. What's the result? The result is this. The work got done and people were joyful. Sanballat was still there. The Arabians were still there. The Ammonites were still there. The Ashdodites were still looking over their shoulder. The missiles were still there. But they were joyful. Why? Because they prayed and they kept on working.
That's the biblical perspective of what we've dealt with this week. Doesn't that change everything? As a prayer for an invitation on him, where are you placing your trust? <clears throat> Finances? Politics? A big military? Where are we placing our trust? They found a solution to the problem by placing their trust to the God who controls all things. If he can control the kingdoms of the world, he can take care of my problems. How long has it been since you prayed about what's shaking up your world? Because face it, it doesn't take nuclear missiles to shake us up, does it? It takes a lot less than that. We can get all shook up over a little of nothing. But when we're all shook up, it does matter, doesn't it? Our world is shook up. How long has it been since you've really prayed about what's shaking up your world, whether it be a national headline or a personal problem? Are we working or just worrying? Are we working or weary? Are we part of the solution, investing of ourselves in the work of God, or are we part of the problem? You see, God has a perspective of this whole situation and we fit into that as we stand and sing. What number? Number 99. Number 99, you come. <laughs>